From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Diversity training restrictions former President Donald Trump implemented are back in force tonight. One of the first executive orders President Joe Biden signed Wednesday rescinded the Trump order. Federal Times reports another EO President Biden signed requires people to wear masks at all federal workplaces. Bans on gifts from lobbyists to political appointees and other ethics issues are part of another executive order President Biden signed yesterday. One provision restricts employees from lobbying agencies they leave for two years. GovExec, also, uh, GovExec reports the order also prevents employees from taking big payouts from private sector employers before they take political appointments. New leadership's already in place at the General Services Administration. Former GSA Chief of Staff Katie Kale is the new Deputy Administrator and Acting Administrator. FCW reports former CIO Sonny Hashmi is the new head of the Federal Acquisition Service. The new political appointees that are already showing up at agencies will need help from the career people who've worked at those agencies for years. Those career officials will be the difference between success and failure for the Biden administration's programs. Robert Shea's National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton, former Associate Director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, welcome. It's good to see you again. What exactly should careers be doing on day one, two, and tomorrow day three to set these political appointees for success? Thanks, Francis. Well, first of all, they should be uh, uh, getting their stamina ready because, as you know, when new political appointees come into agencies, they're eager to hit the ground running, and uh, they think that it's a sprint. So uh, career employees should um, be you know, ready to work hard, ready to work uh, long hours during the week, over the weekends, really to make themselves indispensable for whatever the needs the political appointees have. They're not only got an aggressive agenda, but they're learning, you know, where the bathrooms are, although we're a lot virtual these days, um, you know, what kind of equipment to use, what the, the rules and protocols are in the agencies. They've got a lot to catch up on over and above the agenda they're trying to uh, implement aggressively. Is there a role for the careers to kind of temper that mentality that it is a sprint? Because I understand both sides of that coin. The politicals are coming in and probably most of them understand that they have an expiration date stamped on their foreheads 18 to 24 months from today. And the careers understand, I was here a long time before this person came. I'm going to be here after this person leaves probably. And there is a marathon to run. Is there kind of a, a, a tempering function that, that the career should can or should play? Sure there is. That's a delicate balance, though. Um, no political appointee wants to be told to slow down, that they've got a long way to go. Likewise, almost the worst thing a career employee can tell a new political appointee is, we've tried that before and it won't work. Their job is to say, here are some of the pitfalls we've confronted in the past. Let's try to work together to figure out a way to overcome those in the future so you'll be more successful than others who may have tried this in the past. One of the things that we're seeing, a common theme, at least in my observation so far, is a lot of these people that are going in at the non-Senate confirmed levels, the second level, the third level down, are people who were just in these agencies four years ago. 
Um, is that an advantage or is that a disadvantage given what could have changed in an agency in four years? Well, if you're a career employee, it depends on how you treated them when they were there the first time. I'm kidding a little bit, but, but I think it's an enormous advantage for the Biden administration to have on the ground people who've been out of government and have gotten the benefit of that experience, but who are now back in knowing what they knew when they were there the, the, in the past. What exactly is the career person's role six months from now, a year from now, in doing the kinds of things that we're talking about? We've covered kind of what happens in the next week. What's that look like further down the road? Well, hopefully the, the boundaries between a political appointee and a career civil servant have uh, sort of dissolved and that you've got a real uh, partnerial uh, culture emerging between those two workforces. You got to be careful. It's a civil servant's job uh, not to be political, to provide objective advice, but hopefully you've got a mutually, uh, a set of mutually shared goals that you're working towards. You got a plan in place to accomplish them and you're in the trenches together. It, what causes those uh, boundaries to dissolve, though? Is it anything different than a typical um, colleague uh, relationship? Or is the dynamic different because of the nature of the political person on one side of that equation and the career person on the other side of the equation? Well, I think it's a function of trust emerging. You know, I recall a lot of folks trying to give me a wink that they were aligned to my political point of view. And that sort of, you know, uh, uh, leaves a bad taste in your mouth as people try to um, inappropriately show that they're more loyal than their other than others. Um, on the other hand, you know, being objective, uh, providing candid advice, demonstrating your uh, expertise in specific areas, helping the new political appointees overcome some of these challenges that you know will emerge. Those things build up trust and, and dissolve the barriers between political and career federal employees. The candid advice component is something that you and I have talked about before. You brought that up on the FedHeads podcast that we do together not too long ago. The fact that the careers, when you were at OMB, kept you from making some mistakes by telling you either that's not legal or it's not feasible. I know you don't want people to get into the, we've done that before, we tried that before and it didn't work situation, but there's a, a, a terrific function for guardrails for these people to play, right? There absolutely is. And this came up in the context of Schedule F when the previous administration tried to set up a new schedule uh, that, that dissolve some protections for the career civil service. You want people to be able to provide candid, sometimes tough love advice um, uh, without fear of reprisal. Uh, and and that, that those protections, those civil service protections sort of give you confidence that those folks are, are telling it to you straight. Um, and you really want to preserve uh, the ability of, of career civil servants to provide you that kind of expertise, that kind of advice, as tough as it may be to take. All right, 30 seconds left, Robert. What would you watch as all of this unfolds to see the direction in which the Biden administration will go? Well, it's very interesting to see who's been appointed in an acting capacity from the career civil service. Um, it shows an enormous amount of trust by the Biden administration 
in those people who are on the field today, um, how those appointments pan out, like you say, which previous administration officials emerge as senior leaders in the Biden administration. That's going to be very important to watch. Robert Shea, thanks as always, my friend. Thank you, Francis. Up next, tracking security concerns in the Arctic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, staking the claims America needs to keep the peace. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Coast Guard has new icebreakers in the works to help patrol the Arctic region. Right now, it only has two, and one of them isn't operational. Russia and China are both staking claims in the Arctic. Rebecca Hertzman is the director of the Project on Nuclear Issues and the senior advisor of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for being here, Rebecca. Tell us about what's changing in the Arctic, um, particularly geographically and climate-wise. Absolutely. Well, you know, the Arctic is really transforming right before our eyes. It's in growing strategic importance. It is a focus for Russia and its modernization of its nuclear forces and where the preponderance of its forces and its nuclear forces are located. It's uh, critically important to many of our allies in, in NATO and those uh, that are partners in terms of their access and control in the far north. And for the United States, while we may not have the same level of investment in the Arctic um, and the same level of military presence that the Russians do, we do have critically important assets there uh, in terms of our early warning systems. And the Arctic has always provided a really important zone of strategic depth for us. And uh, as things creep closer, that may be more difficult. You've also written about uh, China's uh, role in this region and some positioning they're doing. What are you seeing there? Well, I think China doesn't really um, want to be left out of any zone of critical importance, including one like the Arctic, and wants to be wants to be a player, um, wants to consider itself, I think, a near Arctic uh, player. Um, that's in part because of the critical economic resources that are located there, the rare earth metals that are very important to Chinese industry and a lot of their high tech industry. Um, and also, I think their sense of competition at the geopolitical level, both with Russia and with the United States. You talked a little bit about the resources that the U.S. military and the U.S. already has in the area. Um, are we seeing uh, an effort by the U.S. government to build up those resources? And do you think that they need to take those steps? Well, I think this is going to be really challenging for the United States, right? There's no way we can directly compete with uh, with Russia in terms of investment and military uh, location in the Arctic, and nor would we want to. Um, that would just be escalatory and would spend us right into the ground. So the question is, what sort of strategic investments do we need to make sure we take care of, both on the military side, but also in terms of our political and economic investment? So I think when we look at that, we've got to really think about how do we preserve a sense of strategic depth across the high north. That involves a lot of our warning, uh, early warning systems, radar systems that are really going to have to be stabilized. They are very much threatened by climate change, and we are going to have to get on top of that. And while we'll never have a you know kind of military presence the way the Russians would, we will need to make sure we maintain some access and some mobility there, the ability to be responsive. 
And I think the final thing is we need to, especially in, you know, I work on nuclear issues, we need to make sure we stand very squarely with our allies and partners in the region to make sure there's a culture of safety and nuclear safety. Uh, the Russians do a lot of their experiments. Some of these uh, experiments with their new military systems have um, not gone very well and have been pretty dangerous. Uh, so making sure that we treat nuclear security and nuclear safety as an absolute critical priority in that region is essential. You have a new report that makes um, some recommendations in this area. It sounds like you think that that partner effort is really key. Could you elaborate a little more on why that's so um, important for the U.S.? Well, you know, first of all, in the Arctic, there really is sort of a sense of collective and cooperative governance that occurs there. And we don't want to undermine that. There's That is a critical thing that um, helps, has maintained the Arctic as a relatively safe and peaceful zone for many decades. So we need to encourage that. How does that work? Well, by working with the same partners that have been there, whether it's our Nordic partners, the Canadians and others, to make sure we're engaging collaboratively, not confrontationally in the region. Um, if we do that, I think we'll be able to meet most of our interests, protect the interests of our partners and allies, um, but be less, um, not doesn't require us to be provocative or escalatory in the region, which serves no one's interest. It sounds like it's a really interesting um, area Partly because um, some of the challenges there are, you know, related to other countries, and some are a, a result of climate change and sort of things that that no one can control, right? At least not as directly. Um, what do you think, kind of the, the the Biden administration needs to do? Is the U.S. government putting enough focus on the, this area? Well, I do think we are. You know, <clears throat> there have been so many report after report after report, right, about Arctic policy. Um, but it's not clear to me how many of those reports have really been executed. We're going to have to do it. Um, I would highlight that this look at the Arctic also corresponds with a very important effort, for example, to modernize our nuclear command and control systems. So those things are going to have to be aligned. The challenges of protecting and sustaining our radar systems are going to have to be moved up. Um, and so it will be a priority. And the thing is, you know, I think for, for a long time, the Arctic was sort of seen strategically a lot of the same ways that, you know, Americans think of, you know, the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, you know, a source of strategic depth that protects us. Well, as climate change brings everyone closer together, increases the transportation through those areas and heightens the sense of both risk and priority for other countries, we're going to have to, you know, kind of refocus there and not sort of see it as a safe place to ignore. Um, and I think that that'll be kind of what has to drive our policy. And with just 30 seconds to go, um, it sounds like this is not just one agency's problem. Are you looking to see some some inter uh, intergovernment work here? I do think it will be important to have a strong White House voice on this. There's no one department with this job. It's not just DOD. It's not just uh, the other sort of domestic agencies. Um, and it's a critical, as I said, uh, foreign affairs responsibility for the State Department as well. But I think what we need is that driving set of priorities that need to come from the White House, be set for those departments and agencies, and put them to work. And then we've got to take those tough questions in the budget, and align them there. And that's, we know that's where the rubber often meets the road. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. 
I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. Welcome back. The new Biden administration has an opportunity to set new precedents in contracting. The prices agencies pay and how they pay them is one possibility. Eric Lofgren's a research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University and writing about this issue recently. Eric, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. What's the biggest challenge now as the department tries to figure out what it should pay for things, the Defense Department, that is? Sure, Francis. Yeah, the department has been basically using a very similar mechanism to determine what's a fair and reasonable price for essentially the last 100 years. So it's a very much an industrial era model. And when you think about how production was done back in those times, that seems to make sense, right? Because most of the products that were bought by the Department of Defense and in the broader economy were you know, physical products in nature. And so most of the value that went into the product wasn't necessarily the product design or software, of course, because they didn't have software back then, but it went into things like raw materials, right? Physical capital like machine tools, facilities and the like, and then also assembly line labor. So when you're trying to buy a product in the industrial era, most of the cost was actually in the physical attributes of the thing that you're buying. And even for an information good like a newspaper, for example, most of the cost was actually right in the paper, in the distribution system, in the printing, and the capital that went to support that. But so the Department of Defense, of course, it when it decided on how should it be justifying prices in the 50s and in the 60s with the Truth in the Negotiations Act, they're really looking at what is the resource input cost into this object. And then you, you can add maybe a 10, 15% profit on top of that, and that's a fair and reasonable price. And one of the issues was over time since the 50s, the, uh, the sources of value being generated in the economy has changed. So the, when you look at, for example, software, data, or even product designs and other types of intangible assets, those can essentially be reproduced at zero marginal cost, right? So when I'm reproducing software, all of the, all of the uh, cost was actually in the front end in terms of research and development and other uh, costs that were really expensed and not capitalized um, through the accounting system and, and the way we think about value. So if the government now is looking for, well, what's the input cost into this piece of software? Well, it was basically zero to reproduce, but what did it cost to, to uh, create it is, is a good question. And, and then when we start thinking about that, you know, we really start thinking, if we take economics seriously, it's not the input cost that defines the output, right, in terms of what's its value and what its price should be. It's almost the other way around. And the way the department probably needs to start thinking about pricing in the 21st century for information goods particularly, and you'll even start seeing for physical goods the content of information in there growing, right? Lean manufacturing 
is actually an intangible asset that's not amenable to costing because you don't know exactly which end product. It's an organizational capability. You don't know what end product, you know, you can't trace a specific cost to an output. Uh, 3D printing is another one. So as the information content, even of physical goods increases, we need to start thinking about the opportunity costs, the cost of alternatives, rather than the input costs. Um, how much labor, material, and the like it took. Eric, you've got four recommendations that you write in this piece, and we're not going to have time to talk about all four of them. Commercial solutions openings, consumption-based solutions, mission or capability-based requirements, and budget line item consolidation. Tell me about budget line item consolidation, because the way that the money flows strikes me as maybe the most important of all of these. <laughs> yeah, that, that tends to be one of the things that I think is incredibly important too, but it actually supports the rest of those recommendations. And so budget line item consolidation is when you basically take these quite low level managed uh, program elements and kind of consolidate them to provide more flexibility to the Department of Defense so it doesn't have to pre-specify exactly what is needed. And that's a kind of a difference from the industrial to the information age in terms of Back in the industrial era, you had more commodity-like products that you could pre-specify, you knew what it was, as opposed to today where if you're looking at, for example, cloud between Azure and AWS, these are actually differentiated products. So they have di differentiated offerings and differentiated pricing strategies. And to the extent that the department has to line up this money to a very specific thing years in advance, that doesn't lend itself to this kind of you know, more information era uh, processes that provide the flexibility to do something new, to create competitors, and then derive value through the competitive ecosystem that is provided. Eric Lofgren, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.